Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Jordan Jarrett-Bryan of Channel 4 News, and Glenn Moore of World Soccer. They can't meet until the final in the Champions League, but the Premier League could be decided when they come head-to-head at the Etihad on April the 10th. Within the week, they'll resume hostilities in the FA Cup semi-final at Wembley. One is going for a quadruple, the other a treble. So, Jordan, who blinks first here, Manchester City or Liverpool? Mike, I'm not sure anybody blinks first. I think that both these teams are going right to the wire. I know a lot, a lot of people have been suggesting, you know, there's enough games between now and the end of the season that one of these teams is going to lose a game and it's going to be a dip and the other team will take advantage and then pull away. I wouldn't be surprised at all. I've looked at the fixtures. I wouldn't be surprised at all if both these teams manage to get between now and the end of the season without losing another game. I don't think they'll win every single game. But I'm, if by blink you mean one team taking their eye off the ball with a defeat and the other team pulling away, I don't think that's going to happen. I, I think you've got two elite machines of football teams here, Mike, that I think are in the groove and really smell blood against the other one. I think we're in for a really exciting finish to the season. I think the momentum is with Liverpool. I think the last handful or so of games shows that the momentum is with them. But I think you've got a City team that have been here before. They've been here before. They know it's like to not only chase, but be chased and get the job done in both scenarios. So I'm not as convinced by everybody saying that there's a couple of defeats in both these teams. I can see both teams going right to the wire here. And I think that that game at the Etihad could be the game that ultimately decides who wins the title. Yeah, there's a relentlessness about the whole process at the moment, isn't there, Glenn? Liverpool, you know, we always say, oh, they can't win the quadruple, can they? But they're certainly into that phase of the season when they're, you know, essentially churning out results. You know, they beat Nottingham Forest on Sunday evening without Salah and Mane, which did look a little bit like a statement of intent. Well, certainly if you go back, you know, for the history of the game, it, it was very difficult at one point even to do a double. And then doubles became fairly common. And then teams have started picking up trebles and things and so on. So I guess the, the dominance of those teams at the very top now is such that it's quite feasible to see that someone will eventually win everything. I mean, you know, we look at our game, who's going to win the FA Cup? Well, it's probably going to be Liverpool or Manchester City or possibly Chelsea, <clears throat> with due respect to Palace. Who's going to win the, champ- the league, league, league title? Obviously Liverpool or Manchester City. Who's going to win the Champions League? Probably Liverpool or Manchester City or, or Chelsea, with a nod to maybe um, Bayern Munich. It's a, you know, if you don't support one of the sides, I mean, as thrilling as they are to watch, it is getting a little bit boring compared to the sort of variety of teams you had involved chasing trophies 
back in the day. But in terms of where we are with them, can they win it all? Personally, I'd be I'd be surprised. I mean, it will be a hell of an achievement. But I just remember last time they were going to go the season unbeaten. It was Watford that beat them. So it could be an unexpected defeat. In fact, they're playing Watford next, aren't they? But I, I don't see them losing that, to be honest. There's quite a bit of depth there, more than there was with the you know, one-two strikers now. But there's a lot of matches. Tiredness will creep in, although you're less tired when you're winning. They are beginning to ride their luck a bit in games. I mean, there's been one or two games, but it's been awfully close. Last night, Forest had some good chances. And, of course, they had to beat City in three of those competitions. So you would have thought on the odds that they, you know, assuming they end up playing City in each of those competitions on the odds they're not likely to beat them every time so I can't personally see them doing the, doing the quadruple but I certainly wouldn't rule it out When you look at the squads Jordan who do you think is the strongest you know, you, in terms of not just natural talent and, and, and depth but maybe durability and, and even sort of character personality I would tend to lean just a smidgen towards Manchester City only because as I said earlier on I think They've been there and done it. I know Liverpool have won a, won a title and a Champions League, but I think City are looking at, is it four out of five titles now? They've not won a Champions League, granted. But I just think that seasoning of having churned out so many titles in the last few years under Pep Guardiola, and, and it's pretty much the same squad. I know there's been a few ins and go ins and outs over the last couple of years, but it's pretty much the same core of the squad there. I would suggest that, that they have the slightly more battle-hardened squad of the two. In terms of talent now, I think maybe that's a different issue. I think Liverpool, arguably, man for man, have more talented players. But if, if I was an alien coming down from Mars and you said to me, you can manage Liverpool or Manchester City based off of who is more battle-hardened from here on in to win to win a title, win, win, the, win, you know, win something significant... I would just just veer towards Manchester City. I think that they maybe needed Liverpool to kind of come up their backside a little bit of late to give them that little bit of a kick. I think Guardiola will, you know, he'll be telling his team, "Look, we are really in for a fight here. It's it's go time," as they say in in, in America. And I also think if you kind of quietly offered, said to test them both, both managers, Guardiola and Klopp, look, come on, guys, Klopp, I'll give you the Premier League. Pep, I'll give you the Champions League. I reckon they'd quietly both accept that and walk away from that as well. So um, I, I think that that would what what they would say off the record, but on the record, they obviously they're going to win everything. But I would slightly veer towards Manchester City over Liverpool, but only just. I reckon it's the first time in the, the recent year battles between the two that both sides have been largely at full strength throughout most of the mm-hmm. season. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously Liverpool had Van Dijk injury. City had brought out for quite a long time yeah. by the end. The yeah. Port the year after had been magnificent. Uh, this year, there's been odd in, uh, injuries and instances, but for the large part of the season, both sides have been pretty much a full strength. So maybe this is the first real test of which is the better side. Yeah. What, what did you make, Glenn, yesterday of that FA Cup win at Southampton? They seemed quite irritated that they let Southampton back into the game just for half-time. But, and then, you know, let's be honest, one going away, didn't they? Yeah, which I guess it would be quite encouraging, the fact that such as the standards, I mean, if you're a City uh, fan or Pep, such as the standards, uh, you know, they, I guess maybe a little bit of complacency, but I mean, it's a bit of an unfortunate own goal. But, yeah, to think, right, you know, we're not going to put up with this, almost like a little warning, you know, that we can't afford to let our standards drop against anybody. Uh, and Southampton have pulled off by two results against City in recent years. So I would say from a City point of view, the reaction would be very encouraging. 
uh, you know, in terms of that, you know, it just goes to show you, you, you can't let your standards slip and also that they can just, just move up another gear or two. Yeah, as we as we've mentioned in the past, Jordan, you know, the city will be a different animal if they get Harland. What I'm interested in about is the sustainability of the Liverpool model. There's going to be squad churn. Minamino probably will will go. Origi has already been linked with AC Milan, but it is significant. It seems to me that everyone's got confidence in the process, in the recruitment strategy, in where they're going. Does that count for a lot in the long term? Oh, 100%. You know, I mentioned the word machine earlier on, and they are a, a machine both on and off the pitch as well. And I think that actually the mechanics of what happens off the pitch for Liverpool, we're seeing is, is the main reason why they're successful on the pitch. The two go hand in hand. You know, I don't want to have a dig at United this week. Let's give them a week off. But I think oh, no, we're, we're seeing... going to talk about them later. Oh, OK, OK. okay. <laughs> we're seeing that if you don't have, if you're a mess off the pitch, it's only a matter of time before you become a mess on it as well. So... I don't, I don't feel like, I feel like it's very, very essential that what they're doing off the pitch and in the boardroom is allowing Klopp to basically do his job, which is become, which is be a top, top manager. So yeah, they seem to, the whole Salah thing's interesting for me as well. I, I have a feeling that they're going to ride that one out. I don't, I don't think there'll be an agreement contract wise. I think they're going to let him run his contract down and then let him go. But the way they've actually pr- they've planned ahead with the likes of, Jota and now recently Diaz, I think speaks to a club that actually isn't thinking about the next six months. They're thinking about the next two, three, four, five years. They're planning for life after Salah, even with Salah right here now, and put themselves in a position whereby they are in a position of strength. If Salah leaves in a year or two, they're confident that they've got another guy that on in, in Diaz that actually can take on the mantle from Salah going forward. Now we'll see how good he is going forward, but he looks very good so far. So I think all those things are, are really playing to a, a club, not a team, a club that actually have its stuff uh, in on order, both on and off the pitch. So I think, yes, yeah, essential. Mm. When all this is going on, Glenn, it's very easy to forget that Chelsea could end up with two trophies themselves. You've got Real Madrid in the in the Champions League, then Palace in the FA Cup semi-final. Is there a case to be made, actually, that on a one-off game, they could be the best cup team about? They've been sort of a bit under the radar, haven't they, in terms of picking up, despite all the chaos that's swirling around the club at the top, that they've got a long run of victories, uh, well, near, nearly all victories uh, now, uh, under Tuchel, who, who is certainly as capable as either Pep or Klopp uh, tactically, Chelsea have got a very well-balanced squad, even if there's a slight sense it's still misfiring at the top end. They keep finding goals from somewhere. And, and it does make you feel, when you look at them going forward, that the, there is more to come if they can find a way to you know, get their £90 million strikers into into the system more successfully into into their system. Yeah, so certainly wouldn't rule them out. And of course, they are the defending champions in the Champions League. They're my tip. Sorry, Mike. They're my tip to win it. I know that I've said, and you've laughed at me on previous podcasts about tipping United to win the Champions League. That obviously won't be happening now. We've, and we've laughed with you. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you laughed at me, and rightfully so. Rightfully so, Mike. I deserved it. Um, but I've changed horse now. I, I'm going with Chelsea. I know that smart money with most people is on City or Liverpool. I've just got a feeling that the the kind of chaos that kind of Glenn speaks to about what's happening around the club. I think there's no better club in England that 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 works better under pressure and uses this us against the world mentality than than, than Chelsea. And I think they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna harness that inner inner victimhood, if you like, to I think retain the title this season. Yeah, yeah, you've followed that um, ownership story quite closely, Jordan. I just want to dwell on that for a little bit. 
what are the wider implications of this? You know, we've got the same usual, you know, cus- cascading cast of billionaires turning up with uh, convenient ambassadors. Is there a chance being wasted here to actually build a new model that's not quite as dependent on money? Yes and no. So I think, yes, you would have thought this was, this was the opportunity for the governing bodies, alongside governments, to really look at who earn, who owns the football clubs in our country, how they own them, and always draw, draw a line in the sand of the types of people that they've had previously coming into this country and buying, buying clubs before. The reason why I say no, though, is because I just wonder if the, if the horse has bolted already. And I think we're in a position now whereby the expenditure of these clubs is so high and has been so high for so long. The expectations of the fans, especially a club like Chelsea, are also so high. If you start saying these are now the types of owners that we're going to be allowing to buy our football clubs, if the, the, the drop in expenditure and expectations would be so would be so vast that you may cause another sort of problem. So I, I think in a very, very ideal world, you would decide that now, you know what, we're going to build a new model, something maybe akin to in the States with the American sports, whereby you have caps on that sort of thing. But I, I fear we're maybe too far down the line now. And I think we're now at the position, Mike, whereby it's a question of, you know, pick the best of the worst types of individuals to own these clubs, which I think is really, really sad. But I, I fear we're kind of too far down the line. And the fact that the government and the Premier League haven't even shot down the idea of the Saudi consortium taking and buying Chelsea, I think says a lot. Is that but that says that they might not get Chelsea in the end, but the mere fact that the Premier League and the government are happy for them to have a bid and be in the mix, I think says all you need to know about are they going to use this as a, as a chance to, to remodel football in this country and ownership, which for me, I think the answer is no, they won't. Yeah, I, you know, I know we're trampling over old ground here, Glenn, but you know, it seems to me, at least, that we do need some form of independent regulation here. Yeah, it's like a son has been a bit of foot dragging with the um, Crouch Review and quite a lot of silence there on what's going to happen with that. Yeah, Premier League almost throwing one or two sops to them to say, yeah, well, you can have, you can have this or you can have that. Yeah, we won't change the name of the team or the the badge, but we, yeah, we're still going to run the thing. I think it's very important that that gets over the line. Um, this case shows, along with many other examples, how much there is a need for independent regulation of football, which clearly is completely incapable of, run, of regulating itself. Like quite a lot of industries in this country, we should be externally regulated. So, uh, classic, I, I, I'd agree that part of the problem with this Chelsea deal is the speed which, which for obvious reasons it has to be conducted, makes it quite difficult to rewrite, move the goalposts while you're doing it in terms of the type of ownership. If you could get some kind of supporters golden share involved, that would obviously be helpful. But the Premier League, with its open doors, count the money, don't worry where it's come from, policy has left itself in a, in a right mess. I mean, yeah, it's, it's not just Chelsea or Newcastle. I mean, you've got the owner of Manchester City sitting down for two side the other day. Um, yeah, we're it's it's in a very difficult position in terms of um, do we pull up the drawbridge now, but we've got a couple of the bad guys inside, or do we try and clear out the stables, which um, requires a lot of legal power and political will, which probably isn't there. Yeah, and that leaves us in a in a hyper elitist world, doesn't it? I thought the one of the best quotes of the weekend was from Thomas Tuchel, Jordan, where he basically said, "Look." He was reminded, look, you've won six on the bounce, you've won 12 out of 13, 
as he said, the problem is when we have a good run of 13 games, the two teams above us have had a good run for three years. So, you know, we spent the first, what, half a quarter of an hour of this programme talking about three clubs. That's true. That's true. Yeah. And I, I think many people will echo the kind of sentiments that Glenn mentioned earlier on about the kind of monotony and the boringness of, is that word boringness? I'm making up a word now. Boringness <laughs> of, um, of of what the Premier League is and who, who the cartel, if you like, of three or four clubs that seem to t- take all the riches. Yeah. I mean, the, the City and Liverpool have, have raised the standard in terms of expectations in this country and indeed Europe and Chelsea, as good as they've been, you know, years gone by, what Chelsea are doing would be enough to win a Premier League title. That 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 just isn't in the case anymore. And they've probably spent, well, definitely spent more than Liverpool and matched somewhere in the round what City has spent. They still can't get in that top two at the moment. So I, I, I think Tuchel kind of speaks to what's needed to be done now in order to really win this Premier League. And I think that going back to the issue of ownership, we are now in this kind of really horrible vortex of the, the, the people that spend the most money are going to win are going to win titles i think that unless you kind of can keep up or better what the likes of city are doing with, with state backed money no one else has got really a look at my club arsenal you know for all the progress we've made we're miles off those those clubs at the top because we're not going to spend what those teams spend so we'll always be a we'll always be on the periphery and we're a big club so if we can't do it the likes of west ham tottenham villa everton those guys have got no chance as well mm. but in that context i suppose glenn it's it's good to see a club like Crystal Palace, with all due respect, uh, in the last four of the FA Cup, it's a foundation stone season for them. They've actually changed strategy, going for for youth, some you know quite bold recruitment. They're no certainly no longer a one man team, are they? However good Wolf Sahar is, no. But even there, I mean, um, Josh Harrison, uh, David Blitzer, two of the owners of. Uh, Palace are rumoured to be one of the consultants bidding for Chelsea. So yes. it's like a, a bit like the players and the managers. The you know, owners now see clubs as a stepping stone to bigger clubs, which does put interesting um, twist on the semi-final they've got coming up. Yeah, we'll we see what happens with that. Obviously, there's lots of bids, but that is just sort of shadow on the horizon, perhaps, for, for Palace. Uh, but you have to say, I mean, Vieira's been sensational. I would have been one of uh, those arguably doubting because he obviously hadn't been particularly successful in France. And to turn around, I mean, Roy Hodgson did a brilliant job in keeping them up and stabilising the club and he's built on that and turned them into an expansive team with some good attacking players, yeah, some good young players. Yeah, uh, I think it helps Zaha not to be necessarily the only man they're focused, so focused on. He gets a bit more, well, A, he gets more space in the ball, there's other people to pick up and he can change his role slightly. Yeah, it's, it's a question again, obviously Gallagher will go back to Chelsea and he's been an absolutely crucial player for them. So you know, they're going to be automatically weaker if they don't do any uh, transfer spending next season. Uh, though, obviously, people like Elise you know, will be a, a year uh, older, more experienced, which will help. Gay at the back will be another year more experienced. So there's there's certainly good progress there. I mean, Palace, you know, only 10 years ago, I suppose, were very much a yo-yo club going up and down. But now they're very much an established force in the Premier League. Uh, and it's interesting. And they've done terrific work at the training ground. And the next bit, of course, is to tidy up Sohurst Park a bit, which has always been um, quite an interesting experience to get to. 
True. I, I, I think Vieira is actually my tip at the moment for manager of the season. I think that what he's doing there is brilliant. I think, look at the young players he's developing, the likes of, you know, as he's been out for a long time this year, but, um, you know, Gallagher there has been brilliant. Elise, we're seeing him come to the fore as well. Signing of Edward. I think he's even developed Zaha. I think Zaha's added an, an element to his game uh, as well. The, the brand of football they're playing, I think if he can make them comfortably top 10, and I don't like to say I told you so, but I actually did tell a lot of people that I thought they were my tip for ninth. I had them pre-season Palace. I thought that the lot of the rhetoric around Vieira coming into the Premier League as manager of him not being a success elsewhere was a little bit harsh. He wasn't ripping up trees anywhere else. But I don't think if you, if you look at his record in America and in France, the jobs that he was doing there wasn't as bad as I think people were making out. So I think he deserves massive credit. I think it was 10 players left the club. And, and coaching staff as well in the summer. I think he's done a brilliant job there. And I think unless David Moyes can get uh, West Ham top six, which I don't think they will now, I think Vieira is my manager of, of the shout, uh, manager of the season shout. This I, season, I think Moyes sure. has won three of those manager of the year awards already, which is extraordinary because of his, his lack of actual trophies. Uh, he's done a, he did a brilliant <laughs> job at Everton, obviously, for many years. Uh, Vieira was always a very impressive bloke as a player, not just as a player, but the man around him. Um, and uh, it's, it's great to see him doing so well, to be honest. Yeah, there's, there is a sense, isn't there, Glenn, that, that West Ham are just running out of a bit of steam and, and possibly players, you know, they, they're certainly missing Jared Bowen, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, maybe they should have been, they didn't invest at all in January, did they? I know it's hard to bring in players in January, but even if it's just a bit of backup strength in one or two places. Uh, Moyes has done tremendously well in terms of keeping them on the road with so many and so many different competitions with a very thin staff and they had lots of injuries particularly at the back yeah Antonio has had injury issues uh, Bowen so yeah, a lot of the key players have had injury problems and they've done very well to, to keep up where they are I think if you're West Ham now you really are looking at prioritising the, the, the Europa League to get to the final uh, would be fantastic I mean you have to look at the atmosphere when they you know to get to the quarter final and um Cups, those that's what that's what fans remember. Yeah, I mean it's all very well coming sixth, coming fifth. You know, to, to actually get to a European final, that doesn't happen very often. Mm. Yeah, they were they were pretty you know, comprehensively beaten at, at Spurs. They're fifth at the moment, Jordan. Three points behind your club, but having played a game more, going to be interesting. The next North London derby, isn't it? Whenever it is, <laughs> they haven't scheduled it yet. So whenever that game is, but yeah, I, I think that game, whenever it is scheduled, um, will be will be most likely a key one. I guess as an Arsenal fan myself, and Arsenal fans will be hoping that by the time that game comes around, there's enough of a gap and a cushion that even if Spurs were to win that match, it wouldn't really matter so much. But I think for Spurs, they are definitely making a fist of it. They had a really poor run about three or four games ago. They lost to Southampton and Wolves, I think, in the same week. And then they were kind of win-lose, win-lose, win-lose for a couple of weeks after that as well. And I think the West Ham win yesterday for them was was huge. I think they had to win that game, especially after Arsenal bounced back with their win against Villa. So I think for Spurs, they're definitely showing that they are in this fight. I mean, Son and Kane up top, you've always got a chance. I don't think there's much else in that team, if I'm being honest, beyond um, Son and Kane. I know Kuliszewski has been um, made a really, really impressive start, but I don't see much there. So I think the Spurs are going to pip Arsenal to fourth place. They're going to need those two now for the next nine, ten games to really drag that team to fourth. But but yeah, I think that the North London derby, depending on when it is, I think similar to the Man City-Liverpool game, I think, you know, could be decisive in deciding, you know, which team finishes where. Yeah, I suppose the undercurrent of all this is always 
Antonio Conte, what move is he going to make next? You know, high maintenance, high achiever. When you look at him at the moment, is the rebuild dependent on the limits of his patience? Well, it's probably dependent on the limits of um, Daniel Levy's wallet. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> if, if he can get enough money to, to bring in the players that he feels he needs to bring in, then you feel he's likely to stay. I mean, it looks like Kane's going to hang around now for a while. Kane and Son, as Jordan said, I mean, arguably one of the best two in Europe as a, as a combination. If you've got those two in the team, you've always got a chance. They've still got you know a good goalkeeper. They've got some, yeah, you know, they've got, some, got a reasonable crust of some pretty decent players there. Uh, without being yeah, absolutely elite quality in some positions, but it wouldn't require an awful lot to make them that, you know, a little bit stronger. One or two players here and there, and sometimes just sort of bringing players in, back into their best form, which you, know, you imagine Conti, given a full pre-season with them, yeah, and a bit more time, uh, you could see them being stronger next year without a huge amount of expenditure. They would expect one or two bits of spending and, and maybe a bit of clearing out. I mean, there's been a bit of clearing out going on, I suppose, already. Um, and uh, it does look... Yeah, if everything could do with a bit of stability for a couple of seasons, but you're not really likely to get that with Conte, are you? Even if he stays, it's also going to be a slight sense that it could be at any moment one of those volatile relationships. Yeah, the, there's a lot of sort of romantic talk about... Pot- potentially Pochettino returning to Spurs, Jordan. You know, watching PSG lose at Monaco, you know, it was a disgracefully decadent performance. They did not care at all, uh, which suggests that the team is unmanageable. And is this sequence of, of, of failures reflecting badly on Pochettino? And could it, you know, basically, you know, throw a, a massive spanner into his career path? To some degree, yes. I've always been a, a big fan of Pochettino, and when it was looking like Arteta was going to possibly lose his job earlier in the season, he was the guy that I was saying Arthur should go for. I believe at that point he was still. I think he was. I think he was still. He was gettable. I, th- I don't don't think he was. Sorry, last year I'm talking now. He was. He was gettable. Uh, he, he didn't have a job. But I do think his credibility has been slightly damaged by going to Paris. I think his his stock, if you like, has slightly dropped. Now we know, as you mentioned there, that PSG is a, is, a, is a weird club that are, you know better managers than than um, than Pochettino have failed to deliver the, the the holy grail there of the Champions League. So I don't think it should be held against him too much um, for not winning the Champions League. But I think it's the way they're losing games. I, I think that that was a move that he saw as an opportunity to try and really kick on and build his reputation. But as I mentioned, I think he's actually gone the other way to the point now where I believe he's still the hot favourite for United. But I, I don't think that he's as hot as he maybe was six, 12 months ago in terms of you know his, his stock. So I wouldn't put the blame solely at him. I think there are bigger issues at PSG as to why they're not delivering. But he hasn't, you know, when you've got Neymar, Mbappe and Messi up top, that brings a lot of problems. But equally... You shouldn't be losing some of the league games they're losing. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that that you, you have to be good enough to be able to make that work. If not at the top level, at the latter part of the Champions League, I can maybe forgive that. But in these league games, I'm sorry that there, there shouldn't really be any excuse. So, I, I think if the United job was offered to him right now, snap your hand off because I don't think there's going to be any other 
big teams of that class coming in for him in a way that I think there might have been, say, 18 months ago? I think, um, I mean, I'd say he, he should obviously take the United job if offered it, even though that's a bit of a basket case as well, but it's not a bit of a basket case. But when you look at this, um, I mean, Pochettino replaced... Uh, Tuchel, who's since won the Champions League, who replaced Emery, who is in the Champions League last eight, uh, and two managers before was Ancelotti, who's in the last eight. So three of the last four, well, PSG managers are in the last eight of the Champions League, which suggests the problem might be the club rather than the manager. Yeah, and and also, Glenn, you know, when we're looking at a culture shift, which is probably what PSG needs, uh, let's let's lose Arsenal, if we could, as an example of that. Is what's going on at Arsenal an object lesson in the value of faith and patience? Because, you know, there was pressure on Arteta early in the season. Others might have taken the populist option and got rid of him, yet they persevered. Is that, as I say, to to repeat the question, really, is that an object lesson? Yes. I mean, two things. One, the team had the star. The Aubameyangs moved to Barcelona I mean, it's not a direct transfer. It appears to have been one of those rare transfers that everyone has benefited from. I mean, the play on both clubs. Uh, and two, I suppose it's one advantage of Cronkay being unbothered by popularity. I mean, um, fan protests aren't going to make him sack a manager. A, he's never there. And um, he doesn't seem to be in for a popularity contest anyway. But I, I think that applies everywhere. I mean, um, I'm, I'm always, I'm one of those guys who's always reluctant to sack a manager because it's not necessarily going to be a better one out there. Sometimes you have to look at the picture, you know, would someone else done better with those? I mean, I, I uh, because of where I live now, I see quite a lot of Wimbledon. There's a lot of pressure on the manager there. So it would be after 20 games without a win. But if you look at the bottom of League One, so far, you know, uh, Doncaster and Morecambe and Fleetwood all fired their managers. Hasn't changed anything for them. Gillingham have escaped and the Neil Harris has done a brilliant job. Shrewsbury and Lincoln kept their managers and have gradually climbed the table. Yeah, as a general rule, farm your manager at this stage of see, you know, mid-season when he hasn't got time on the training ground, he probably hasn't got that much money to spend, it isn't going, unless the whole thing's completely broken down in terms of relationships, it isn't going to make a massive amount of difference. I mean, you might get a couple of wins and then it reverts to the norm. Yeah, so, yeah, sacking managers in, in haste is generally a mistake. I think in terms of the Arteta thing, there were a lot of fans saying he should go. I think there probably was a feeling at the Arsenal hierarchy that they needed a bit of stability, that, you know, you, you, know, you should back somebody because uh, they've been through, obviously, Emery uh, been and gone. And Arteta clearly also had a, had a purpose, had a direction, you know, we're going to go with these young players, we, you know, we've, got, so we've got a chance here, we're going to you know, play this way and was able to convince the ball that, give me time, this will work. Yeah, you know, he, he obviously the vision of how he wanted to play. And I think we've now seen how he wanted to play. It wasn't immediately obvious early on. You got the odd game, but now you, you've very much a clear purpose. And yeah, congratulations to the ball for sticking with him. Yeah, you know, and for Arteta sort of to come through it, and also sticking with him with some pretty difficult decisions around Aubameyang. You know, when you've got a player you spent so much money on, it's not that easy to to you know back the manager and say, yeah, we're back you against our star player. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, you're closer to it than 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 I am, uh, Jordan. But what strikes me about Arsenal at the moment, it's that it's a team that will mature with its key players. You know, Bakayo Saka was fantastic, I thought. Yeah, it does beg the question, does he need to be protected? You've got Martinelli, who, you know, there'll be there'll be a lot of pressure on him to go elsewhere. In terms of that, the long term, or the sort of medium term for Arsenal, are you optimistic? I am. 
I really am. I think um, Arsenal now have a manager leading a team of people that are on the same page. I think what was also key as well, and I think this has been underestimated, the fan base seemed to be, uh, you know, on the same page with the club as well. Many, as Glenn said, didn't want him to stay, thought he should have gone, didn't think he was good enough, experienced enough, big, name, big enough name to be at this club. But now everybody, players, fan base, and I definitely the, the, the hierarchy at the club are now seeing now what Arteta is really about. And I think that's really, really important. And I think having people like Saka at the core, he's the, he's the jewel in the crown at, at Arsenal at the moment. And I think protecting him in terms of, you know, him being at the club, I think is essential because I think whether Arsenal finish fifth or fourth this season and get Champions League football or not, I think keeping people like him happy and his development is, in, is integral to the process that kind of word that people hate using in and around Arsenal is integral to the process going to the next level. I actually think to keep the likes of Saka, Martinelli, and Emil Smith-Rowe, those young, talented players, I don't think the key would be necessarily getting Champions League football. That would help 100%. I think the biggest thing that Arsenal could do to show those players they are serious now and they're on an on a upward curve would be to sign a couple of players right now. We've seen it in recent seasons with like to Liverpool, City and Chelsea signing players in February, March and April for the following season. That just lets the team, the, 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 the players and the fan base know we are looking to do things next season in a serious way because we're bringing in players now. I think if Saka saw a couple of top players announced in the next few weeks for next season, I think that is what would make the likes of him and Martinelli think, I want to be here next year. Even if whatever happens, there's an implosion and they finish fifth or sixth. I think it's really key now that the club shows the likes of Saka they are serious about moving on to the next level next season with or without Champions League football. So I think it's integral what Arteta's doing there in terms of galvanising a team that have all bought into what he wants. He now has to finish a job. This will mean very little if they don't get top four. It's theirs to lose. And I think if they weren't to get top four now, that'd be a massive implosion that I think would be a setback to some degree. But I think keeping that core, core players that have got you this far I think the best way to do that is to show we're going to go again. We're going to build again. I think just that little bit of a kick now with a signing or two now, I, I think would not only get Arsenal over, over the line this season, but give the likes of Saka that mid to long-term belief that this is the team that are serious about competing for the biggest trophies in the country again. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd, I'd say that the well, to keep them, you've got to look at you can win things. I don't think it's necessarily about the money, particularly for younger players like Saka and Emil Smith-Rowe and Martinelli. It's, it's a relative early in their careers to make plenty of money. They, will, they, may, they may have agents in their ears saying, you should go here, you should go there. Um, I remember doing a piece of Arsene Wenger towards the end of his career when his his whole philosophy was like, we will give the players the you know, put them in the best positions, put them, you know, uh, where they can flourish. Uh, his faith in if we've got the pattern right, you know, uh, the players will want to stay. But he did lose. He lost players to Man City. He lost players to we well, lost Man Persie at Man United. Obviously, he lost players to Barcelona because Arsenal didn't look like they're actually going to win the title in, in these stages because they got they got overtaken by these other clubs. Eventually, players wanted to win things, and I think, and he he, he was very disappointed by that in many respects. And but because it, the, the, the what he called the financial doping sort of took over and obviously lost players to Chelsea, you know, Cole. So Arsenal need to show signs that, that they're going to yeah, enable their players to challenge for the big trophies uh, and, and to win the big trophies. I think that's what will keep players at the club in the, in the, in the, in the near term, the, the sense that they can win things. 
Yeah, because I know we do say, well, money is everything, but actually, is it everything? Because if you think about Manchester United, Jordan, gross transfer spend in the last decade is £1.4 billion. And in that time, they've only won two Champions League knockout matches. Is it being unfair to actually characterise them as this season's biggest losers? Oh, 100%. Is, is, that's totally correct. Um, uh, I, the talk pre-season was United were title contenders. I never thought they were. I think we're seeing now that to be title contenders and win the biggest trophies, you need elite managers. You do. I don't care what your playing staff are. If you don't have elite managers, you'll only go so far. And they didn't have an elite manager at the start of the season. For me, they've gone from being everybody's title contenders to now they might have made a top six which I think is is, is, a, is a massive embarrassment. So, yeah, I think they're the, the biggest losers of the season, regardless now, whether they get four fifths. I think whatever's happened, th th their fall from grace has been so vast that um, I think it's an embarrassment. I think that, as I mentioned earlier on in the, in, the, in the show here, they need to look to the likes of the cities and the Liverpools about how to get things right off the pitch to really get things right on the pitch. I also think with United as well, we need to, at some point now, stop this outrage when they lose games and draw games. I think we have to maybe now start to reimagine, and United fans won't like me saying this because it may sound like I'm saying drop your standards, but I'm saying I think we need to start reimagining what this Man United club, what they what they are. And is a, is a draw, for example, at home to Southampton 1-1, is that actually a bad result anymore? 10 years ago, that was a bad result. But maybe now, losing a few get This is a new Man United now, and until they reboot and, and reset... I don't think United drawing at home or losing away to a Villa or whatever. I don't know if that's headline headline news anymore in the way that it would have been four or five years ago. So there's a lot of work to be done there that you'd think and you'd hope is being done now in identifying the next guy. I don't have any faith that that is being done. So they are, for me, regardless of what happens between here and the end of the season, the biggest losers of the Premier League season uh, for this year already. Mm, it seems to me absolutely simplistic to blame Rannick for all this. You know, we've got the, the usual managerial bingo going on with, you know, you have a name a week pretty much pushed forward as the most realistic choice. I suppose the reality, Glenn, this is going to be a long-term process, isn't it? And culture shift, the sort of culture shift that United need is completely impossible without a squad rebuild, isn't it? Your thoughts? I mean, well, I must when you look at results, maybe you're stuck with Moyes, who just about becomes the end of his <laughs> six-year contract, maybe just finished it by now. Uh, we look at what's up at West Ham since, and, and the sort of culture shift he's achieved there. Um, but they've, I mean, they've tried, you know, the, the, the gnarled old British manager, they've tried the, the, the big name, they've tried the young, former United legend. Um, they've gone through most of the um, options in terms of management uh, without any great success. It does seem that it's quite a big juggernaut to turn around. Even like if he went for the squad and say, well, Maguire's in a terrible season, obviously get rid of him. But yeah, it's, it's, it's only last summer he was one of the best players in the Euros. This isn't a bad player. It's a good player playing badly. And I think that applies to quite a few of the squad there. Good players playing badly. Yeah, they're just weighed down by the pressure, uh, the, the sequence of bad results. There's obviously negative culture in the dressing room. It's going to be quite... I think... You are in a situation whereby whoever comes in will probably need to do a clear out because it's a dressing room. It's quite hard 
to um, keep United behind a manager. It's, it's very quick. You start getting whispers. Oh, we don't think he's very good. We don't think Sancho is very good. Whether it's against other players or against the manager, so there will need to be a clear out. You need a, as John said, that the new manager should be identified because whoever takes over, you want them in early. You know, as early as possible so they can make decisions about who to buy and who to sell. It's no good bringing someone in in you know, late August. Uh, so they've got to nail someone down. I mean, it's interesting um, we'll come on to Jesse March, but looking at his interview, he'd clearly been lined up already to take over in the summer. It's just they had to accelerate the process because Leeds were losing. Uh, like George said, I don't think United are anywhere near that kind of stage yet in the process of who they're going to bring in because part of anything else because of United would have leaked by now. So, and then they had the new player, the new guy needs to try and bring a few key signings, a few key signings of big leaders in the dressing room. You know, people are going to get a, the, the dressing room behind them and behind him. And that, and that isn't going to be easy. You know, it's, quite a few managers have been tried now and they've all found it very difficult. This isn't going to be that easy to turn around. But I do get a feeling that once you did get it sorry, turned around and if they could start next season with a bit of momentum behind them, then it will you could change things quite quickly. But it's, it's, it's achieving that change. It's always a difficult thing at clubs. I mean, yeah. Eddie Howe's managed it in Newcastle mid-season. Frank Lampard hasn't managed at Everton yet. Um, it's quite difficult to stop that. Even the next year's going to be a weird season with the World Cup in the middle of it as well. So it's going to be quite a weird season to operate in. Hmm. You mentioned Everton there. Jordan, they're not too big to go down, are they? The defending is just shocking. It's, it's, it is shocking. It's really, really bad. I think Lampard's got a job on his hands there to keep them in the Premier League. I mean... I, I think Norwich are gone. Um, so that's one slot slot gone already. And I'm I'm still not convinced Leeds are going to stay up yet. So I think they're still in the mix. So I think Everton, maybe the only kind of, I don't know, uh, comfort would be that they hope there's two other teams that can take those spots who are worse than them. But yeah, they are, they are sinking really badly. And I don't buy this idea that them being out of the FA Cup is a good thing because they can now focus on the champ on the on the on the Premier League campaign. I think winning breeds winning, and I think when you get battered by Palace four 0 as well, I don't see any positive in that as well. So I think they're they're banging trouble. I know Jamie Carragher was on television last week saying that it's a championship back four. I think he's right. I think it's a poor back four. I think the midfield, there's some good players in that midfield, but it just seems to be disjointed. Um, I think this kind of plays into the point that, that Glenn was making earlier on about mid-season appointments and not necessarily always working out, especially someone like Frank Lampard, who I think is more of a coach than a manager. I think that he needs the time to implement what he wants to do on 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 that squad, um, in a way that Thomas Tuchel I think is more of a manager. And we saw with Chelsea, he was able to come in and manage Chelsea, and we saw what what happened last year. So I think that 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 appointment was an ill ill advised one. Although I accept under Benitez a change there had to be made. I'm just not sure Lampard was the right person to bring in. But yeah, they're banging trouble. Yeah, going back to Leeds, Glenn. What have your initial impressions of Jesse Marsh been? You know, that win at Wolves was spectacular and it was almost a spectacular affirmation of the, the Bielsa spirit because, you know, they did, they did that without Bamford, Rafinha, Meslier, Phillips. I suppose they've just got to hope that the international break doesn't kill their momentum. Well, I think, the, I mean, you get that, but I mean, imagine being Everton going into international break when you're depressed and miserable and they got two weeks to stew on it with some players away, some some gone. I mean... Getting a win before the international break doesn't mean you go into it with a sense you can 
rest up a little bit. He gets a, a fortnight to get to know his squad a bit better. The ones who are left behind, which is quite a lot of them there, yeah, and to settle in a bit more. So I think it goes in in a good place. Um, it's interesting. I mean, I follow quite a lot of American because I do quite a lot of women's football. I follow quite a lot of American journalists on Twitter, and they're really invested in ten, in um in Jesse doing well because of this whole American coaches Ted Lasso thing. And it is, I have to say, it is slightly odd hearing a, a Premier League coach with an American accent. You don't really, you still don't really associate it with, with, with football, with soccer. But he's confident, he's articulate, he's very much a, a modern people and tactics coach. He's got a lot of passion. In his early interviews, he, he's referenced his accent. So he's not afraid of the fact he's American. He's, he's mentioned the NFL in a couple of interviews. So I mean, he mentioned the um, the uh, challenge between him and his and the, the keeper being like an NFL tackle. Um, it's it, 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 so he, he was lined up a while ago, so he knew the squad. So I think he's got a chance to be. Like, oh, yeah, we should judge him on his on his results, his ability, not on his accent. And he, he's certainly enthusiastic, and he does look to be. You know, quite a rare case of Cubs owners maybe thinking ahead properly. He does look, and he pushed this line about being a natural successor to Bielsa in terms of uh, the passion and, and, and the, the energy that he wants his team to play and the passion he wants to play and the passion that he's got. So you could you could see it working. Never easy to come in at this stage of the season. Not easy with the injury problems that they've got. Uh, that is an absolutely massive victory, and I've rarely seen a game turn quite so much on a red card. Uh, and and Wolves are one of the least teams you expect to see completely collapse at the back like that. But uh, so he's got a chance. I mean, they've got what a seven-point cushion now at this stage of the season when teams at the bottom don't win that often. That that might be enough with a couple more wins, and then he gets the summer to to, to replan. Me. One thing that is key though. They do need to invest in the summer. I mean, I know the injury's been a big problem this year, but they've still got a core of the promotion side and they do need to invest in the summer. Yeah, but aren't the financial realities summed up yeah, by a piece on Sunday by Johnny Northcroft? You know, he said that, that Villa are willing to pay £60 million for uh, Phillips in the summer. That will be a transformative signing for Villa, won't it? But it's a you know pretty big warning bell for leads if it goes through yeah i think um uh, that, that's a lot of money for i read that as well and i'm I thought, wow that's i mean he's good but that's a lot of money um but yeah <laughs> I, I think if, if you're losing someone like him it's a blow but I, I tend to think that the fee would soften the blow because i'm I'm, like I say, I'm not sure it's quite of that level but i think leads will get raided and gutted this summer anyway i, I think whether they stay up or go down I think they're going to lose two or three key players. I think Rafinha, the, the winger, I don't think he'll be there next season. I even think the goalkeeper, I think the goalkeeper's a weird one because he lets in, uh, he, he reminds me of like a poor man's Lloris. I'm not a Lloris fan at all, but he seems to kind of save the difficult ones, but then he lets in a lot of the easy ones. He's it's a, it's a really weird one, but I could see a Premier League goalkeeper, maybe a bottom half Premier League keeper the next season, Premier League team, picking him up next year. So I think Leeds are going to get gutted regardless. I think for Villa, for them to invest that much money in, in, in a midfielder like him, I, I think is 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 um, is a big statement. Um, you know that Villa's owners, um, I think they're the third or fourth richest owners in, in, in the Premier League. So that, that, you know, they've got the money to spend. But yeah, I, I think Leeds should expect to lose quite, quite a few significant players this summer. But I think they'll replace some probably players from the Bundesliga, which is a, which is a good market to shop in. Um, yeah. And he will know the league very well, having been working there. Price, players are still relatively cheaply priced. The, the game's quite physical there. You know, I, I could see them trying to pick up one or two players from there. 
Yeah, you know, I'll probably end this by by reflecting on Leeds if I could. You know, to be honest, they were my bogey team as a kid. This was the time of Don Revy, of sock tags and cynical football. You know, the damned United. Over the years, their pretensions as a big club exposed them to ridicule. But Marcello Bielsa began to win me around, and that win, as I mentioned earlier, at Wolves was certainly in his image. I've still got my reservations about the ownership, but I think the Premier League needs their passion and unpredictability. Do you agree? Please let me know. In the meantime... Thanks to Glenn and Jordan for their insight and thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.